0: This is Tom
1: Fox. Welcome to a very special week on the FCPA Compliance Report. On Monday, August 31st, will be my 500th episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This week, I've asked five of the top compliance commentators around to share with me some of their reflections on what has changed from their perspective over the past 10 years or so in compliance. We begin with Mike Volkoff on changes in FCPA enforcement. Matt Kelly visits with us about changes that he has seen from his business journalist at Perspective. Jonathan Armstrong talks about changes in data protection and data privacy. Jay Rosen talks about changes from his unique business development perspective. And finally, Jonathan Marks talks to us about the changes he sees in compliance Mirroring those he saw an internal audit after the passage of sarbanes oxley on my 500th episode i'll talk about some of the changes that i've seen and also some of the highlights from podcasting over the past eight years or so this is a very special week i hope you will enjoy it as much as i have enjoyed producing it and bringing it to you thanks for being a part of the fcpa compliance report and I hope you will stay with me on the journey to Episode 1000. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I am with my good friend and colleague, Mike Volkoff. Uh, Mike is here to uh, help me celebrate my 500th podcast
0: anniversary, which is upcoming. So, Mike, first of all, uh, welcome, and thanks for being a part of this. Well, Tom, it's uh, it's a great honor. Uh, you know, I think, the world of all the work that you do, uh, and you're not paying me to say that uh and if you are paying me i know it's not going to be that much uh but in any event um look uh this is a great moment uh it let's look back and i, I just mentioned to you that uh when i first met you tom uh it, i think it was like 2010 2009 conference in houston a, in compliance and everybody was you were sitting in the front row people would speak And then you would tweet out information about each presentation. And everybody was like, wow, Tom Fox is here. Tom Fox is sending out a tweet. And uh, I always am reminded of a journalist who said to me once, you're the oldest guy I know who uses social media. Now, whether or not you're older than me or not, Tom, you're the oldest guy I know that's developed social media and brought social media to uh, put, put it together with compliance. So congratulations on the 500th episode. You are uh, the absolute, I'm not going to call you the evangelist or the guru. You're the leader in this area, and it's a real pleasure uh, to always do anything with you and collaborate with you. So congratulations on this. You should, you should take a moment and enjoy it. Have a bottle of champagne with your beautiful wife. Enjoy yourself and, uh, you know, acknowledge it. Well,
1: might let you have the champagne for me, but uh, although you're older than me, I'm I'm better looking. So, I'll, I'll <laughs> that
0: that it, there is no question, and that's why podcasting helps us, Tom, because we have podcast faces. Okay,
1: so Mike, yeah, what I wanted to visit with you about, is, you know, I'm visiting with people on um, different perspectives over how the last eight years or so in compliance has gone, and what I really wanted to visit with you about is. Uh, What you've seen in terms of uh, the Department of Justice, the SEC, the regulatory uh, changes uh, that uh, have occurred, Uh, you had the phrase we don't use as often anymore uh, because we don't have to, which was reading the DOJ tea leaves, and that's something that I think you and I did a lot in 2010, 2011, 2012, Uh, and then we, we don't have to do that as much anymore, so maybe you could pick up with how we used to read the tea leaves and and how we uh, don't have to do that anymore.
0: Boy, what a good question because 2010, 2011, 2009, we're pushing reading the tea leaves and what would we look at? Speeches and enforcement actions. And we'd look for trends in the uh, addendum, uh, the C addendum schedule C to the enforcement actions because at that time, they would change, DOJ was changing some of the requirements as they went along. Now it's a a set form. But I remember, for example, the Pfizer Enforcement Action of 2012, I believe, they put in a whole thing on a high-risk auditing program. So that that each of those would change. uh, And then, frankly, politics entered into it. Remember, there was the big movement to um you know uh, amend uh the FCPA big business was worried about it and they were going to congress they were trying to get some traction with the chamber of commerce which i always said yeah i want to see those conversations on the hill where you go we just want to make it easier for businesses to uh bribe and uh that's not going to go very far with senators and congress people and it didn't uh but nonetheless in reaction to that and in reaction to that and in reaction to i think a lot of things you wrote uh the compliance community wrote uh and and sort of discussions that were had DOJ came out with to, to me and the SEC came out with the two perhaps the most important document in compliance now which is the FCPA guidance and once that came out in 2012 we didn't have to read the tea leaves like you said they put it there in black and white and if anybody can point out to me any comparable document that's come out from federal prosecutors anywhere, look, I'll eat my hat, as they say. But there, it's there's nothing – that document is just extraordinary because the prosecutors not only – and not only did they lay out what they thought the essential elements of a compliance program was, they laid out the factors for – prosecuting cases. They told you what kind of cases they declined. Remember there, you were writing about uh, and pressing them on the issue of, tell us when you decline a case, why you declined it. Put it out there. Just let us know. Give us some guidance. And they did. They put it out. So to me, that changed everything. And, And I think it's the reason for looking at the last eight years, because what's happened from that, they realized the value of that and then we had the criminal division putting out the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And then we had the expansion of that document, which follows from the FCPA guidance, by the way, uh, the expansion of that document to all cases within the criminal division, all corporate cases, and the expansion of that eventually to to the FCPA pilot program and the uh, uh, you know, the, the the corporate enforcement policy. And there you look at it, it grew in the last eight years, but that FCPA guidance was perhaps incredible. And I've told, uh, you know, Chuck DeRoss uh, and others in the section at the FCPA, that that was perhaps one of the, you know, single most influential pieces of work uh, in compliance I mean, it, it, it to me, it's bigger than the sentencing guidelines. If you think about it, so I had those same uh,
1: conversations with Kara Brockmeyer, who was the head of the FCPA unit at the SEC right. at the time. And uh, I agree, I agree wholeheartedly with you, Mike. The original two thousand and twelve FCPA resource guide was a seminal. Uh, Document And and at that time, it was the single best compendium of all things FCPA. Of course, it it formulated the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, but it also had uh, the statute itself. It had the few case laws interpreting the FCPA. It had the DOJ's interpretation of the FCPA. Whether you agree with their interpretation or not, you at least knew what they were going to argue. Uh, they had a section on declinations that you and I actually wrote an article on behalf of the Chamber of Commerce asking for declinations to be made more public. So right. uh, the, the, a couple of things beyond uh, what you said is, one, I saw the government respond, I thought, to uh, uh, fair criticism. And that criticism was we need more information. And we need more information in, in a kind of a stated format. We got that. And the second thing was that the uh, information allowed, uh, uh, particularly in the hall, uh, formulation of the 10 hallmarks, it allowed for a growth in compliance programs and development of compliance programs. The framework was general and broad, but it allowed individual ex- ex- experimentation so the companies could uh, manage their own risks and manage the risk that they had, that they assessed. And so we saw a growth of comp- compliance programs based on the original formulation. And now we've got the second edition of the FCPA Resource Guide. It kept the basic framework in place, so um, but they've updated it now. And, uh, and I think a very welcomed update that was released uh, last month.
0: Yeah, and uh, there are two points I wanted to to make Uh because you you triggered some thoughts on that. It's interesting because you can see how valuable the guidance is and the fact that the government is giving information and they're doing it in a responsible way. I have a lot of respect for, as you know, DOJ prosecutors having been one myself. But uh, they do great work. They've been putting out a lot of guidance. And you notice that we don't have that many opinion letters anymore in the FCPA and it may be because the guidance you know has come out that you don't necessarily need the safe harbor of an opinion letter now you can rely on the language itself and i know there are general principles but there are hypotheticals in there there are really specific pieces of information that i think create safe harbors so we we don't have as robust an opinion letter process, and I think that's a reflection of the fact that the government did provide all this information. I don't know what you'd think about that, because I know you've written a lot about the opinion letters themselves.
1: So I really hadn't thought of it in that line, but I think you're actually onto something, Mike. The FCPA uh, Resource Guide made clear and specifically stated what the government wanted was a well-thought-out, considered program. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't believe we've seen one enforcement action that was based on negligence, meaning somebody screwed up. Uh, Enforcement actions always deal with an intentional act uh, that was made, or an action was made without any plan in place. And so the FCPA Resource Guide uh, and then the two evaluations of corporate compliance programs uh, released since then have given us enough information that we can formulate a well-thought-out, considered approach to almost any problem literally short of bags of cash across the border uh, that I can think of in compliance.
0: I want to bring up one other issue sort of on the enforcement side, uh, Tom. And as you know, a good friend of mine, uh, Judge Sporkin, uh, died this year, and I was he was just a terrific guy. He was an amazing person, and I always called him the grandfather of the FCPA. And he said, "Hey, hey, hey! I'm the father, not the grandfather." I said, "You're no, you're old enough to be the grandfather." But in any event, I think what we've also seen is an evolution. I, I'm going to give him credit because he was a mentor to me. But in the late 1970s, and his heyday of the uh, SEC enforcement, he was the one who started with, "Let's, you know, let's if companies come in and confess." and fix the problem. And I'll leave it open. You guys all come in and he got a great response from companies. He created an enforcement program, which basically close to the presumption that we see now in the corporate enforcement program. But you have to come in, be truthful, tell me everything you did, tell us er and how you fix the problem, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously cooperate. And he's the one that started with that principle, and it took DOJ and the SEC eventually years to sort of go full circle from sort of an aggressive enforcement program uh, with, you know, no promises, nothing, to now we have a corporate enforcement program that resembles a lot of some of the principles that he put into place. And I, I want to say that he, can, he had a lot of great ideas. He, he was the one who thought books and records was the way to capture companies because he when he was seeing all the you know companies giving money to the nixon uh you know to foreign officials uh, overseas and he was wondering where do they get that money from where do the companies get the money from how do they record it and he's the one that came up with the idea of books and records and getting ultimately congress to include that with the fcpa so are we, we're sort of at the same point now with corporate enforcement, don't you think if you if you do you know you cooperate, you voluntarily disclose, and you remediate, you've got a presumption. Uh, you know, obviously there there are factors that can prevent you from getting that, but I think his principle over the last you know it's forty five years has come back to roost here.
1: So I have to say uh, I I did want to actually visit with you about that, but I've not fully appreciated Judge Morgan. And his ideas of along those lines of uh, of that presumption and bringing companies coming in, self-disclosing, opening the fully opening the kimono uh, and sharing the information they had, uh, and most importantly fixing the problem. Uh, right. Well, and now we have that enshrined in uh, the U.S. Attorney's Manual uh, in the form of the. FCPA corporate enforcement policy. And that journey, certainly over the past eight years, has been uh, interesting for me to watch uh, because now looking back, uh, in retrospect, there were two cases that I thought now are now recognized as early precursors of that, which were the Hewlett-Packard case right. and the um, Parker Drilling. Hewlett-Packard, uh, excuse me, Parker Drilling, we had C-suite involvement in the bribery scheme. And even with C-suite involvement, uh, the company uh, sustained a significant discount off the low end of the sentencing guidelines. And at the time, you and I and others scratched our head because we couldn't understand how you can have C-suite involvement yet below the minimum sentencing guideline range. Hewlett-Packard, we had multiple bribery schemes literally across the globe, and we had the same thing. Well, what we weren't aware of was that they were getting massive amounts of credit for extraordinary cooperation. First of all, self-disclosure, extraordinary cooperation, and third, extensive remediation. Then we had the FCPA pilot program, uh, which put some discounts in place. And, of course, that led to the corporate enforcement policy. And now, as you said, we have the presumption of a declination.
0: And that's a great point. That and you know, look, Parker drilling and the uh, the uh, Hewlett Packard case. We have to acknowledge that the we know at least in the Parker drilling case, Dan Chapman uh, put in place a you know an extraordinary remediation program. Some people, you know, you've told me, uh, I've read about it, and I've talked to Dan about it. It was an amazing job, and I think that. Uh, Dan deserves a lot of credit in terms of, you know, uh, educating the department on this and showing what a company could do. I mean, I forgot that there was even C-suite involvement in that case. Uh, and then look what happened to Cognizant Technology here where it was the whole C-suite. They self-disclosed within two weeks. They pros- Now they're prosecuting the president, the general counsel, and the chief operating officer. Who've been indicted and Cognizant uh, got a pass under the C- corporate enforcement program. I mean, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Um, so, I, you know, there's been an evolution, and, and uh, there's no question. You know, the pilot project was a was a brief stop where you were going to get a 50 percent discount, not a presumption, and uh, if you met all the requirements. And I think they quickly re- realized that that was just not going to work. Uh, that kind of, uh, they needed more incentives uh, to do that. So look, but we ended up where Sporkin said that he, he gave all the companies like three years to come in and report and they were inundated and they gave them immunity, you know, or a pass. And um, that just goes to show you that, so long as we're prosecuting individuals out of these cases uh, who deserve to be prosecuted. And that to me is the final issue that is going to be the true test of this program. Are you really going to take the cooperation of the company and turn around and prosecute the individuals? If you're not, then this program doesn't work. But if you're going to uh, prosecute the individuals, that will send a deterrence message. They always say that You know, the best deterrence is when you see a a colleague or somebody at your station in a business go to jail, and uh, I think that's the true test of what's going to happen with this program. And uh, DOJ is under a lot of pressure, I think, to bring those cases, and they're hard cases because there's statute of limitations issues, there's foreign evidence, uh, and it's harder. And you know, uh, the FCPA. Bribery is can be a very sexy offense to bring in front of a jury, but sometimes they're tougher cases uh, than you think because uh, of all the ways in which bribes can be paid.
1: Mike, well, as uh, sort of an end to this uh, podcast and this exploration, I wanted to maybe get some of your thoughts around the following. Uh, you worked in uh, what I would call the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice. You someone arrogantly would just call it the Division.
0: Absolutely. You do not say antitrust. They walk around. and I'm talking about like three hundred lawyers who sit around and go, "Well, yeah, I worked at the division. I worked at the division. I say, "Well, wait, there's like, you know, six or seven divisions. No, the division, the antitrust division. I mean, they're a very proud group of lawyers.
1: Last summer, we saw the antitrust division release a uh, antitrust version of an evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And I really wanted to, to ask you about this convergence of not only enforcement thoughts and ideas around these types of crimes, uh, anti-corruption, anti-trust, uh, OFAC, trade sanctions, perhaps even money laundering, but this convergence around compliance programs and the, uh, obviously the antitrust division has had some form of amnesty program for quite some time. Do you see now, uh, Really, greater convergence, kind of on the DOJ side, around these issues than uh, was uh, existed before. Uh,
0: the antitrust division is their criminal program is a little different than any because of the amnesty program. And the first, per- they believe that the the only uh, if you if you give them truth serum and some of the career people there, they'll tell you, hey, we don't like this getting more credit to these people. The the credit they get is if they're the first ones in under the amnesty program and they're truthful, then the company gets a pass and so do all the individuals. And that's the best benefit you should have. But I think what happened is the, the compliance movement, and I attribute this to Joe Murphy and his group, you in pushing compliance, uh, I think has brought the convergence in terms of creating incentives for compliance to be a proactive positive force in preventing and detecting antitrust violations and the department eventually pushed along the group and i think the work they've done in this area is fantastic i think there's cut there's convergence but there're also new things that they're doing tom so for example there are uh, there are professors who have done research uh, on statistical models for detecting um uh, price fixing and taking all your pricing data and fi- uh, finding things you know early red flags. so there's a lot of great work going on in this this is uh, it's a it's a tribute to the compliance profession because now they created yet another incentive for uh, companies to implement effective antitrust compliance programs. there there are a lot of similarities with the elements, but there are also some important differences.
1: Uh, So Mike, unfortunately, we are near the end of uh, this podcast, but uh, I wanted to uh, thank you for a couple of things, actually three things. One is uh, for being a friend uh, for so long. I can remember when we met and uh, you... uh, erroneously tried to get me to go to the big law firm you were uh, having a cup of coffee with at that time. I uh, told you no. What needed to happen is you need to go out and start your own firm. So I was pleased you did that. Uh, the second thing is that uh, we share a uh, college roommate, a uh, friend who, uh, at different universities. So uh, that makes us kind of uh, perhaps uh, at least uh, co-brothers in arms. Uh, so that's been a uh, fun exploration, and to learn a little bit about your growing up and your love of uh, the Marx brothers. And then the other thing is just, you've been one of my greatest supporters. So I wanted to thank you publicly for that.
0: Well, Tom, it's definitely a pleasure. Uh, you know, we uh, we traveled this course together, but I will tell you this. I always, there were two people who told me to get out of big law as fast as possible. That was you, and you said, get out, uh, and then uh, Judge Sporkin. He told me get out, and uh, so I put you two in the same class in terms of mentors and friends, and uh, I, I appreciate uh, our friendship very much. And uh, hell, I've uh, you've always made Houston a great place to hang out with uh, in, and uh, I appreciate that very much because I've spent a lot of time in Houston for understandable reasons. Anyways, congratulations again, Tom, uh, on your. Uh, you know, 500th episode. Let's get together again on your thousandth. It's a deal. All right.
1: This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this first part of the five part series leading up to my 500th anniversary episode next Monday, August 31st. I hope you will join me again tomorrow where Matt Kelly talks about some of the changes he's seen over the past 10 years with his business journalist perspective this special series on the fcpa compliance report leading up to my 500th episode is a special production the fcpa compliance report is a part of the compliance podcast network and a proud member of c-suite radio thanks again for listening i hope you'll join me again tomorrow